Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's episode of the Fraudology Podcast. I'm Carice Hendrick. This episode is our fraud news episode of the week where I share with you some bits and pieces of news that have come out that are related to mostly e-commerce fraud, though the lines are getting blurred every day between e-commerce fraud and bank fraud and cybersecurity and all kinds of things. So I know there's a lot of people that listen to this that may not be in e-commerce fraud, but that's my perspective and vantage point from on fraud. So that is what I'm looking at when I'm looking at stories, etc. I have a few that I think are going to be relevant, whether you're listening to this right away. I believe this will come out on December 9th, 2021, which is actually tomorrow from when I'm recording it. Sometimes I record earlier, but it has been a crazy week and I usually don't share behind the scenes info, but it is almost eight o'clock Pacific time. So if I yawn a bit in your, I'm going to try really hard not to yawn in your ears, but it's been a long day and a busy week. But as a consultant, I am grateful for that. But it does mean there has been a lot of fraud news. Generally speaking, usually in December, I think, okay, it's going to be a little quiet from the retailers I work with because they're going to be really busy. But the last couple of days, that hasn't been the case. And I will be sharing why later on in this episode, at least some of why. There are some new patterns that people are reporting that I've been digging into a little bit. So anyway, just to start a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, I've heard from a lot of you that have really enjoyed Tuesday's episode with Jordan Harris at Ticketmaster. He is quite the character and I really enjoy having conversations with him because he really is passionate about this industry and has done a lot to give back to the industry as far as education and sharing information and wanted to be sure to hop on the podcast before he officially left Ticketmaster and went to iHerb. So Part one is already out if you haven't heard it yet. Part two comes out next Tuesday. And if you are a solution provider, I highly recommend you listen to it. Now, granted, it's one merchant's opinion and I plan on being able to highlight more later on. But I do think there are some valuable do's and don'ts in this episode that a lot of people can learn from. So if you aren't yet subscribed to Fraudology, do so so you know when it comes out, it should come out Tuesday morning. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast, please rate and review on Apple and tell your friends. I know that every podcast you listen to says that, but it's because it makes a difference on the episode growth. And as We look to 2022 and I'm being a little more intentional with this podcast and adding sponsors and other things like that and actually going to offer a lot more information and and other tentacles outside of the podcast. It really helps for growth. So I appreciate it. And if you there's a particular episode you like, it's always fun to see whenever listeners share their takeaways on LinkedIn, especially feel free to tag me. I will always comment on it. But that's it for housekeeping. I am. Oh, actually, I had one more thing. I'm putting together guest interviews for 2022. And so if you're a practitioner, if you're a merchant, if you're a bank, if you 
are a fraud fighter on the ground. I want to hear from you. We will have a couple of conversations with solution providers, but primarily they'll be part of sponsorships. I know that one of the reasons why people love this podcast is because it's not only talking with people that are offering solutions, right? It's people who are on the ground and who can talk from that perspective. So that is why we're limiting it that way. But if you are a merchant or a bank or work, you know, somehow on the ground or investigator or other things, I would love to hear from you. So, okay, that for sure is the end of the housekeeping. I wanted to first, you know, I've talked a little bit in the last couple of episodes about Black Friday, Cyber Monday 2021. This will probably be the last time I talk about it because it's now a few weeks ago or a couple weeks ago now because time moves faster than I do. But I did see that SIFT released actually this morning a pretty cool infographic and information about Black Friday, Cyber Monday and their fraud data. And so I will be putting a link to that in the show notes for sure. One thing I always think about when I'm looking at data that comes from a solution provider is what types of companies work with them. And with SIFT, it's a lot of it is digital first merchant. Now, granted, they work with every kind of company and some very big brands. So I do not mean to pigeonhole them in any way, but the majority of the merchants that I know work with them are fintech companies, you know, crypto, NFTs, etc. They have a lot of digital first retailers a lot in Silicon Valley. They do have some multi-channel retailers. They've got everything, right? Gaming, travel, ticketing, etc. But I know for this, especially Black Friday, Cyber Monday traffic, it was primarily retail as well as some fintech, as they mentioned. So digital wallets, like there's different. Fintech is just such a big category these days, especially if you're looking at consumer fintech. But anyway, that was just something to know. I always like to kind of understand the context of types of companies that the data is coming from. It, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that has a random list in my head of all the companies that use each <laughs> vendor. But I don't know, I would assume some salespeople do too. <laughs> but so that's kind of how I categorize it in my head. But anyway, they saw the big headline from this was that ATOs spiked big time. ATO attempts uh, rose in multiple categories from retail to food delivery and doubled and tripled in some fintech sub-verticals. So I believe fintech sub-verticals would be like crypto, NFTs, digital wallets, possibly some digital banks, that kind of thing. There was a 2,950% increase in attempted ATOs that weekend. It's a 62% and and a 62% rise in payment fraud. So a lot of times we say, you know, there's not as much payment fraud in Black Friday, Cyber Monday, but obviously this was what, you know, SIF system found. And so I think it's always good to learn from and compare to your own data from that weekend and check it out. I do know this is especially the ATO attempts, the account takeover attempts are consistent with reports I'm receiving from a lot of multi-channel retailers who do and don't use SIFT. So I've heard from both. And it could be credential stuffing, brute force. It could be ATO via malware. But at any time, a lot of times when they're looking at account takeover, one of the simplest ways of explaining it would be if they're looking at device and, and SIFT and other companies that are good at account protection are looking at a lot of different things. So I am just oversimplifying this just to kind of level set everyone if you're like, what's an ATO or why do they do it? This is a way that 
fraudsters and bad actors have found to be able to both steal a payment method without buying a stolen credit card and also use the legitimacy of an older account. And so, you know, because oftentimes previous to several years ago, there was a lot of emphasis on new accounts or new orders uh, being placed high volume. high. But now because of account takeovers, mostly because consumers use the same password for multiple accounts, but also other reasons as well, like all the breaches and, and other things and phishing emails and phishing texts and all kinds of methods that they're getting credentials, you know, username and password. Bad actors are accessing accounts. I actually have a really cool uh, merchant coming on, a product manager for a well-known merchant coming on, I believe in January or February. I have to do a little bit of legwork on that where I get, I work to get approval from their communications team. So that's why it hasn't happened yet. But they've done some really awesome research on ATOs and actually found that a big percentage of them are not cashing out right away. They're kind of peeking at the account. There's different, I've heard different terms used by different companies snoop peek anyways access the account recognize that the credentials work and then go away and then a couple months later you'll see somebody else accessing the account to cash it out to make purchases on that card or to make purchases on that account on another stolen payment method or there are other reasons why accounts can be taken over depending on the merchant try not to go down too big of a rabbit hole but uh it's really important if you do have accounts for your e-commerce company that you have some type of account security. Some are better than others. That's always the way it's going to be. Um, a lot of them are looking at device and others, uh, some are looking at behavior biometrics. How is the password typed in? What is the browser language? What is the, you know, all the session information about device and all the other information that can be gathered from it, as well as just behavior once they're in the account. Trying to be vague because I'm purposely being vague is what I'm saying, because this is all information that is out there and in the public. But there are some things that I choose not to say publicly on a podcast, because although I believe that 90, 95 percent of my listeners are using this knowledge for, good, you know, I know some can use it for evil. So that's kind of why I'm being a little vague there. But I do. I did get a text from a merchant today saying that it was ATO season. So I did want to highlight this article or this infographic that SIFT released on their blog today as if you're seeing account takeovers also rise for gift cards, for purchases, etc. This is why. And you're not the only one. That doesn't make it good or bad. Just it's something to be on the lookout for this next news story. I want to reiterate my quote unquote policy for naming companies. I came up with this policy on my previous podcast. I work with so many e-commerce companies and you know sometimes that work is just unofficial where they'll reach out to me on email or LinkedIn just to ask me a one-off question. Other times they're in one of my retailer groups or merchant groups. Other times I'm working with them you know fully as a client there's or they're in a train they you know hire me for training or other things and so I am big on keeping that merchant trust and the practitioner trust. I recognize that is a big part of my superpowers and I'm very grateful for it. So I don't typically name names. However, when a company is named in an article and I think there's educational value for sharing the information in the article, I will use it if I know anything about that company specifically that is not in the article, I won't share it. So 
With that said, and also it's not personal. If I know people, a lot of these companies, your fraud teams are working so hard. And sometimes the issue is that risk was thought about too late or the you know systems take too long to upgrade or you have to hire a lot of people or there's just so many issues, right? So I know that the individual people working on the risk team are working as hard as you can. I'm also where there are just a lot of factors at play for why sometimes some companies get in the headlines for things. So I'm sorry for that giant preamble, but I one time commented on one company just on best practices for an NPR article, and I wasn't even saying anything specific about that company, though my quote was kind of turned to make it sound like that. But anyway... And I got a ranting email from someone at that company because they, you know, we've talked before. So that is probably a reason why I'm doing that. It's also been a really long day. So if I'm rambling a little extra today, I am really sorry. I try to prioritize this as much as I can, but some days are just a little bit more hectic than others. Okay, so I think I gave way too much of a preamble on that. So I'm going to dive into the headline. It's in Forbes and the headline is FinTech's Fraud Problem. Why Some Merchants Are Shunning Digital Banks. I'm going to include the article in the show notes. I highly recommend reading it. It's a little lengthy for an online article, but I think it's really good. And there's a few people in the fraud universe that are quoted in it, like Kevin Lee at Sift and Marianne Miller at Prove. Sorry, I was about to say she was at her former company. And so it's just, it's a good article, but it basically talks about the digital first or neobanks and how they're one of the hottest sectors of fintech I and mean, their valuations have just gone sky high, especially during the pandemic. However, I think a lot of us who are in the fraud world know that a lot of times when there's a new business model, especially when it's around cash or money, fraudsters can often be early adopters. And especially when there's frictionless signup and ease of use is such a key selling point. Oh, sorry, I'm skipping ahead here. So according to Aite and Navarro Group, fintech banks have uh, fraud rates of about 30 basis points or 0.30% or 0.3%, sorry, compared to about point or so 15, 15 to 20 basis points for traditional banks. I actually think that there are some that are higher than 30 basis points. I actually know that for a fact, but that is not the topic here. Because fraud liability is often on CMP merchants, several CMP merchants have started to block transactions on these debit and credit cards for some of the banks due to high chargeback rates. There was a quote from an anonymous fraud expert in San Francisco. I have my guesses, but the quote is companies use, and I think it's a good quote. So companies used to build financial products starting with risk. Everything today is built starting with marketing and risk or marketing and risk often takes, oftentimes comes way further down the funnel. And I would agree with that. I've seen it a lot, especially in Silicon Valley and especially when tech valuations are built on growth, this can be super conflicting with fraud and risk. And I see this in a lot of digital first companies that are venture backed. I mean, food delivery is one that comes to mind because I've worked with a couple companies where that was a big issue. But pretty much any big company there, a lot of times they're measuring it on growth, on number of accounts, on number of users. And that greatly conflicts with a fraud team who Oftentimes, your best form of defense is to stop fraud at account opening. 
But oftentimes you're not allowed to do much at account opening because that your company wants to show the growth and at different stages in digital company growth, they are digital companies venture backed and kind of their journey in that they don't always care as much about risk and if those accounts are real or not. I can think of at least I could probably name off at least 15 companies where this has been an issue in the last five or six years. I kind of have a bit of a rant about it, but I'll try to keep that a minimum. But it is a big challenge because you're allowing a lot of fraud and bad actors into the system. And in a way, you're also kind of defrauding your venture capital you know, firms. But that's a whole other you know, story and not necessarily my focus. But I do think it it causes a lot of problems down the line, especially for you know transaction risk, because a lot of great information about risk comes from the account, just like we were talking about with account takeover, right? The login, who's creating the account? Are they a real person? All these different things. And there's different types of verifications you can do depending on what the product is or what the end game is, what the risk factor is. I and mean, you can even go so far as require a digital scan of a driver's license and a selfie, but you're not going to want to do that for like a $20 meal delivery or something. So just it's always about balance, but I do think it's important to note that a lot of times these companies that have early growth and are really relying on investor funds are focused on the number of accounts they get, and that can cause so many problems down the line. I was actually talking to someone who's amazing in fintech who I'm having on in January. We already recorded the first part, but we're going to do the second part pretty soon, but it'll probably be first part of January. But his name is Gil Rosenthal, and he has been on the fintech side for a long time. And I uh, find him to have very complimentary knowledge to mine. So often we'll talk and we're talking about how sometimes fighting fraud is kind of like being in a sinking boat with lots of holes and you're just putting your finger, your right finger in one hole and your left index finger in another and your pinky toe in another. And he said, well, if we use that analogy, then later on, we were talking about the importance of account creation and, you know, KYC at the time of account opening for something completely different. We were talking about this article. And he said, well, if we go back to your boat analogy, transaction monitoring and transaction risk monitoring is kind of like putting your fingers, you know, in the holes, but or, you know, just trying to plug them up manually, but adding account security and account monitoring at the upfront, whether it's for financial products or e-commerce, et cetera, is like putting a board over that hole and really making it a lot more secure and sealing it more. So I thought that was a really good analogy. I knew I would use it sometime. I didn't totally know I would use it the same day, but it was a good one. And I'm, I can hear a few companies that provide account security writing it down now. So anyway, I think this is all important context to say that one of the ways that fraudsters are exploiting them is through travel purchases. So whenever you go to rent a car or go to a hotel, oftentimes the hotel, well, actually, this is the way it always works. So especially in the U.S., I believe it's the same in other parts of the world, but I could be wrong. I think the majority of my payment processing knowledge is domestic. So I apologize if I'm incorrect on this, but this is for credit cards, at least in the US. And I think well, I am. And anyways, whatever. If you're in another country, you'll know if this works or not. But basically, if you're using a credit or debit card, your card is authorized for the amount that they expect it to be. So if you book 
five nights at a hotel for $200 a night, they're going to authorize for at least $1,000. They'll probably authorize for at least one more night's worth for incidentals like room service, et cetera. So probably $1,200. They'll authorize it, but they're just holding those funds. All they're doing when they're authorizing a charge is checking with the bank to see with your bank to make sure that you have those funds and they're reserving it. Well, depending on the bank, most of them usually drop off authorizations around three days. So if you're staying at a hotel for five days, in between day three and day five, that money's going to go back into your account. But the merchant still has the right to pull that and have it transferred to their bank account through the settlement process once you check out. That is 100% their right. But if you are a fraudster or even if you are someone who is unscrupulous and want to commit first party fraud or the horrible term friendly fraud that we know so well, then you might intentionally book for five days and then maybe, you know, rack up other incidentals, go to the gift shop, go over here, you know, go order a bunch of room service, do all these things. And then you'll spend the money elsewhere once it comes back to your account and then you're gone. Once you can have, you know, early checkout and not have to actually check out at the desk. And so they're settling it behind the scenes and realizing, oh, there's no more money here. Oftentimes it will settle, but then it'll be reversed on the background. Like there's different, that's getting way too technical on the payment side of my life, but it comes back to bite the merchant nonetheless. And this is a real issue. I have worked with several different hotel chains. I've worked for an online travel agency. I know several rental companies. This is a big issue for them. And what they're finding based on this article is that they're especially seeing this with Chime Bank. And that's who they really called out. They also called out a few other companies, but Chime Bank was really the one that they called out the most. And what they're saying is that these merchants are now blocking all transactions to Chime Bank and a few, possibly a few other fintechs. Those were a little less consistent in the article, but they're some of them are corporate policies, some of them are by location, but they're saying if it's a Chime Bank bin, the bank identification number, the first six digits of the credit card, they're they're requiring another piece of uh, payment or another form of payment. It has to be really big if that's the case because Visa and MasterCard, but Chime Banks are on Visa, have a pretty strict rule around having to honor all cards. I know this from my three months of training for Bank of America Merchant Services way back in the day, like early 2000s. And we had to learn a lot of this. And one of them is that, you know, merchants can't pick and choose what bins they want to use. And the reason they started that was because of interchange, because as I've mentioned on previous episodes, some card types have higher processing fees than others. But they also, that also goes for risk. And so some merchants are making these decisions and I think they kind of have, I mean, I'm conflicted on this, right? Because in some ways I understand not wanting to have merchants just willy-nilly block them. And their merchants have to be aware that this is going to have a customer experience impact and that your customer service will probably uh, be getting a lot more phone calls about this and, you know, can have some consequences down the line with lost sales. So it's not a decision without consequences. But if you're looking at a lot of merchants are looking at bin analysis, and I did a whole episode on it a few weeks ago about the importance of bin analysis, 
you may say, hey, and I think a smarter way to do it instead of just blocking the entire bin is to say, if there's another risk factor and they're using that bin, then you'd cancel it. And that might be what these companies are doing. There's only so much that journalists can find out, but, you know, on the record, especially. But that's what a lot of companies are doing right now is if it's on a risky bin, they've already seen a lot of fraud and there's other risk factors, right? It's a high dollar purchase. It's shipping somewhere that's suspicious. It's, you know, whatever the factors are, then that may be right for canceling. And then that way you're not necessarily then when your payment processor and other entities within the payment ecosystem are looking at your transactions and looking at your bin data, they can see that there isn't one that you're just 100% not settling on or that you're declining. That's one strategy of doing it. There's other strategies as well. But there is, this is actually something else Gil and I were talking about today, was just how dependent all the players in the ecosystem are with each other. And how when there is another one player in the ecosystem that is seen as risky or not doing due diligence or costing CMP merchants because the CM, you know, liability and financial liability is on the e-commerce side, then oftentimes they'll be flagged as high risk. That is good business. Every entity has to watch out for their own back. And that's good and bad, but that's good business for your business is to look at that and look at, you know, costs, right? If you have a bin that has 20% of the volume, but 50% of your chargebacks, that's going to be high risk and there's going to be reason for action. So all of that to say that this is, you know, causing a lot of issues, but it definitely, I wanted to also say that this method as far as the, you know, attacking hotels and car rental companies has been used by fraudsters for decades and other people as well. It's just that a lot of the banks have put in different guardrails around that. For instance, they have different levels of risk on bank accounts. And so there might be some bank accounts if maybe they're, they usually have a lower balance they might have an authorization hold for seven days if a transaction is done with an MCC code of a hotel or a rental car. Because sometimes that money does impact the banks too. Sometimes it's the bank's problem that the money wasn't there when it was settled and other times it goes back to the merchant. There's varying, like I said, that's way too complex real fast. But that is why payments experts are so smart and a lot of times undervalued, but it's important to know those things. And I'm very grateful I do for the most part because it goes hand in hand with fraud often. But I think it's just important to know about this because there are there's just a lot of talk about high risk financial institutions and fintechs. But also, I didn't necessarily like that they called out Chime so much, but I know that this was the angle of the article. I also happen to know there are other neo-digital banks that are having very similar struggles. They just weren't mentioned as much. I did want to note that there was a quote at the end of the article, I just always want to dot my I's, cross my T's, that Chime vigorously denies that its app has become a haven for fraud. One other thing I did want to say, I should just wrap it up. I was just going to wrap it up there. But the other thing about these digital apps is that they make issuing chargebacks really easy. So that's another thing, you know, so Friendly Fraud and others where you can just click a button and it's not just these apps because these apps are making it so easy. Now there's a lot of traditional banks and credit card companies that are doing that as well. 
But oftentimes, like the chargeback company I work with, it really does a lot of data and they dive into the data and I love geeking out on it with them. They've definitely done some analysis around the issuers that allow their cardholders the ability to just log into an app or log into their account online and just press a button versus having to call in. I traditionally, I mean, I have other issuing banks, but I traditionally bank with a credit union. And if I have any chargebacks or anything to issue, depending on if it was a purchase on my debit or credit, but there's other things, but they, no, even on my credit card, I have to go in to a branch and file a form and basically like solemnly swear to the bank rep that I did not make the purchase. That is how my credit union offers it, does it, but but other companies that I have credit cards with are much easier. I can just go in, click a button, select a reason, and I'm done. So that was just the other piece I had written down in my notes was that oftentimes these, you know, fintech digital banks that have cards, as well as there's also, actually, I'll stop at for a second. So with, with the cards, oftentimes they're just making it so much easier for chargebacks. And if it's on e-commerce transactions, Almost always that isn't the bank's money. So that is a rant for another day. Also in this article, there's a really good like 101 level intro to ACH fraud and how that works. And even though it's something I'm familiar with, I thought it was really well done and had graphics and everything. So if that's something you're also interested in to see how the ACH rails are being used for fraud, I highly recommend the article. It was well done. One last thing for today's episode, I posted about this on LinkedIn and have heard from several people and I really appreciate it. I am starting to hear rumblings. And when I say start rumblings, I mean like I have had four separate conversations with four separate companies, often in different verticals, having different reasons, but they're all saying that they're seeing very similar activity that's suspicious around gift cards. And it looks a lot like money laundering. I will be diving into this more once I have more pieces of the puzzle. I have put out an ask for help for people who understand money laundering and money laundering MOs. I want to verify that's what these merchants are seeing. But, you know, in talking with at least one expert today, they had a really good point. And I kind of thought about this, but not all the way as much as they did. If you assume that crypto has been used for money laundering quite a bit the last few years, and you know that regulators are cracking down on that, these guys have to go somewhere to cash out. And so I believe that's why we're seeing money laundering and money laundering mules and transaction laundering happening on everything from, you know, digital and neobanks, as well as companies that have digital goods, whether it's in-game currency or others, or gift cards, because gift cards are anonymous, right? And they're not it used to be open loop gift cards that were really the biggest target for money laundering and, and cashing out because you would really shift it easily and didn't really need to have an identity tied to it. But now we're seeing it on closed loop systems, particularly for the biggest brands uh, where gift card resells are in the high, you know, the pennies on the dollar are more like 95 cents to a dollar. Uh, they can get a high rate on the cash out. So I am gathering more information on this. If this is something you have seen, feel free to reach out to me. I will be doing a future podcast episode soon, probably in the new year, 
But I'm also uh, doing a training, a risk training on this for a pretty large company next week. So I'm doing this uh, research for a few different reasons. Anyway, with that, I think that is more than enough fraud news for the week. I am sending my thoughts to those of you who are manual reviewing and who are thinking, wow, Carice, you only work 12 hours today. Like, <laughs> you should be in holiday retail. I understand that. So really trying hard not to complain. It's not often I have to do this. So with that, I'm going to sign off for the day. Don't forget to subscribe so you can listen to part two of Jordan's com my conversation with Jordan Harris. It was uh, quite lively and I will look forward to talking with you soon. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.